Hey everyone, Anna Lytle here. And Kat Pusey. And welcome Welcome to to the the Modern Farm and Artisan Co-op Podcast. We're here connecting you to the lives and stories of our local farmers, makers, and educators that are all dedicating themselves to positively and powerfully impacting the Southern Utah community. Hey everyone, Anna here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to just give a quick update that this will be our last episode until July. So there won't be two episodes in June like there normally would be. Because of COVID-19, we weren't able to record any new episodes. So we are going to take the next few weeks and try and get as many recorded as we can so we have some more incredible content to share with y'all. Okay, so now that that's out of the way, in today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dale Thurber of Delectation of Tomatoes. And I had this conversation with Dale back at the Utah Farm Conference in February. So again, like the previous episode, this audio is going to be a little less perfect than our other episodes have been prior to these past two. But I think that this episode contains a lot of really interesting insight and information. And so I'm excited for everyone to hear it. All right. I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Dale Thurber. A uh, little company I started in 2011 is called Delectation of Tomatoes, etc. And I started with giant tomatoes, seeds, and it was a hobby that gradually took over my life. I do it full time now. And currently I have seeds of over 3,500 varieties. About 2,500 of those are tomatoes and then another 400 peppers and so on. Anyway, I'm here at the Utah Farm Conference today to host and help coordinate the uh, annual seed exchange that they have. And I will have some... I, I brought perhaps... I don't know, 7 or 8% of my seeds I managed to prepackage. It's, I, I obviously can't prepackage that much. So I have a website, delectationoftomatoes.com or giantomatoseeds.com. But um, I'm really here to facilitate. I know these are mostly gardeners and farmers, so they grow their own stuff anyway. But I want people to enjoy what they eat, and you do that by having a wide variety. And I've traded uh, seeds with people from all over the world, especially Russia. I'm, um, I'm in the middle of trading with a woman from Russia now. She's one of six I've traded with. And I will have, when this is, when the dust settles, I just got an email last night, I'll have 450 varieties of heirloom tomatoes from Russia from these different sources. That's just an example. I have maybe a hundred plus from Italy and most European countries and a few other scattered places. So um, I didn't intend ever to end up with so many varieties. But like I said, I started with the giant tomatoes. I've got a list online of my big tomato list, it's called, of about 315 varieties that are supposed to get to two pounds or more. And um, in case people don't know, a new world record was set by Steve Marley of New York on, I think it was September 20th, 2019. It's a variety that I named in association with the family called Domingo. And it comes from Vincenzo Domingo from Sicily. 
and in in uh, collaboration with his daughter, um, we named this variety Domingo. That's his surname. It's a family heirloom from Sicily, 9.65 pounds. And Steve, just a few days ago in the mail, I got a handful of seeds from that tomato. So that's the main Anyway, that's the fun part of it, to grow tomatoes. It can produce slices for 10 tomatoes. And don't let people fool you. These are not all watery, bland-tasting tomatoes. Yeah, they're mostly pretty juicy, but some of them are really tasty. Anyway, so I, um, I'm here to encourage people. I, I do all organic methods, natural. I, I guess I'm supposed to use that word, naturally grown. Um, but I want people to... I have tomato varieties and ground cherries and things that taste like candy. I wish I could get people to eat this stuff instead of processed foods that are what they call nutrient-poor, calorie-dense, and exchange it for nutrient-dense and calorie-poor foods. And, you know, the variety is the spice of life, at least the way my brain is wired. And I never get tired of trying new varieties. I've got 120 varieties of melons and cucumbers, for example. And I love melons because I've got a super sweet sweet tooth. So I try to have fresh fruits all the time so that I don't have to um, succumb to the temptation of candy and ice cream and pastries. And don't get me started. My mouth is watering. It must be lunchtime. Anyway, so my view, kind of my underlying philosophy is if you're going to live, you have to eat. If you're going to eat, you probably should eat healthy food. Reduce your um, health care costs, for starters. And while you're at it, you might as well enjoy it. And you enjoy it with huge variety and diversity of foods. And so I'm, I'm very happy to be able to offer a wide variety of tomatoes and other uh, seeds of tomatoes and others. I even have a line of dwarf tomatoes, about 167 varieties of dwarf and micro dwarf tomatoes. These are plants. The dwarfs get maybe three feet tall, and the micro dwarfs maybe one or one and a half feet tall. So people who live in apartments, as long as they have a south-facing balcony in the northern hemisphere, <laughs> they can grow. And um, I know you can't eat just tomatoes and fruits and vegetables, and someday I hope to have a few acres of land. I mean, I grow beans, but not in, in large quantities. I just grow on people's backyard gardens. That's all I have available to me. So that's a long answer to a short question. So then do you teach people how to save their own seeds too? Yes. I, I've given uh, the occasional class every couple of years. I'm... Um, in Tooele, Utah, I've, invited, I've been invited by the Master Gardeners program there to give a class in May on how to grow giant tomatoes. And, and about every fall, I'll, I'll give at least one class on how to save tomato seeds because I, I, I'm a little bit opposed to the big multinational corporate model. 
and I really like the idea of fresh, local, organic, which is what this conference is about, as food independence and uh, responsible living. You think about what you put in your mouth and where it came from. Unfortunately, 90%, approximately, I think studies show it's, you know, give or take a few percentage points, about 90% of consumers of food are unconscious consumers. For them, it's just a commodity like anything else, like, you know, shoes or clothes or tires, whatever you buy, you get the cheapest price you can that looks like it's, quote, supposed to. And flavor doesn't matter, nutrition doesn't matter, and heaven help me, go to all that research to see what company grew this and how far it came. You know, the average, this was a study down in the University of Iowa, I believe, probably 10 years ago or, or, or more. They said the average distance that food travels from farm to table to table is over 1,400 miles. I mean, I'm an endangered species biologist by profession, and I, I don't call myself uh, an extreme liberal or extreme conservative. I'm a free thinker, and I take issues at a time, but it's pretty obvious the science is showing we're having issues, not just with uh, climate change, but with endangered species being lost at hundreds of times the base rate you know, of evolution over the years and extinctions because of volcanic eruptions and, you know, every 65 million years or so an asteroid comes and gives us an extinction level, whatever. But, you know, a conscious consumer is going to learn about where their food comes from, how it was processed. Does it have pesticides? Does it have herbicides? Does it have, um, does it have, uh, you know, if we're talking about meat, antibiotics? And, and so on. Is that the way we want to do it? I mean, I mean, I'm really an ecologist, and you've got to look at the whole system from the bedrock down below to the incredibly complex biota in the soils and the, all the the soil ecology, the bacteria, fungi, etc., that feed the roots of the plants so that they can take up nutrients. I mean, I add, um, you know, trace mineral, organic trace minerals to my soil so that I can feed them, use organic teas and all that, uh, compost teas and all that kind of stuff to try to feed those plants to concentrate that nutrition in the food. And what keeps me going is the positive feedback I get from people. Not just for my seeds. My biggest month of the year is in May. When I when I offer several thousand seedlings of some of my favorite varieties, um, with so many varieties, that's just overwhelming for the average backyard gardener. Like, I want a good paste tomato, and I'm sorry for the big commercial growers. Roma is boring. There's some alternatives. And the so-called beefsteak tomatoes, the big ones, those aren't big and they don't taste good. <laughs> and I could go on and on. So, so what's a good tomato then for, like, paste and sauces and all that? Oh, I've, I've had uh, one I grew last year was enormous plum. Can get up to a pound and a half. Wow. And Swarlow's Polish plum, it's a late one. Um, let's see, there's uh, Romeo... There's uh, 
Boy, you put me on the spot. Liguria. I, I, I probably have at least 80 varieties of paste tomatoes. Um, you know, San Marzano is decent. Not quite as flavorful as some of the others. I'm just, my mouth is watering. I haven't had a fresh tomato in a few months. Right, <laughs> because they're not in season. Not yet. No, I'm planning on putting a greenhouse in at my new place so I can have... We had salad at the dinner last night, and it didn't have tomatoes in it. And I'm like, I'm going to get fresh tomatoes here if it kills me in February. Organic heirloom tomatoes. Right, right. So then, because one thing I think is really interesting, people talk about how we're having a huge biodiversity loss with animals, but I don't think people realize we've already had such a huge loss in our biodiversity of the food we eat. I mean, I was learning that we used to have like 200 varieties of cauliflower, and now we're down to like less than 20. Like, I just think that's, I just think that's crazy. Like, do you know at what rate we're losing our biodiversity of our like fruits and vegetables? No, I don't, but I think I know what study you're referring to was done about 110 years ago. Well, it was done fairly recently, but they were looking at all the seed catalogs from like 1905 or something. And I think cabbage was the worst, where it was like 97, I'm probably exaggerating, 95, 90% of the cabbage varieties were gone. And um, it, and that's happened with so many others. Um, the way we get more varieties is by gardeners who are committed to developing local, locally adapted varieties, land race varieties, and so on, and reintroducing them. So I've seen, like I said, I started in 2011. I've seen in nine years. Um, the apparent number of tomato varieties more than double. But I think it's because of the internet, like me um, communicating with growers from other places. But um, any loss of genetic diversity, I'm sure you know the the story of corn um, and, of course, the story of potatoes with the Irish Irish potato famine. with just one variety, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely nuts. And it's not just about uh, one variety of a given type in a garden. It's about the, the biodiversity in your garden itself. The more biodiversity it is, the more resilient it is. So you put some alliums in there, you know, onions and leeks. You put some brassicas in there scattered around. You put some um, solanaceae, you know, the nightshades, the tomatoes, potatoes. And you also put a bunch of wildflowers to attract the pollinators and other plants to attract predators and in my place I'm planning on putting in a frog pond and things to try to get frogs and toads to eat, help me eat some insects. I mean, it's a, it's a holistic approach. Um, it's integrated pest management. Although, you know, I'm okay with some loss to, to pests as long as it's not overwhelming. But they've got organic pesticides, pyrethrins, and some others that are quick knockdown. I mean, you can use horticultural oils. Um, just a strong spray of water can get rid of, of aphids to some extent if, you're, if you have extra time on your hands. 
So it, it's much harder and more intense, but it's so much more beautiful, so much more, if you want to wax spiritual about it, it's so, you feel so much more connected to the world and to nature. If you go in the Midwest, I mean, my first research project out of grad school was in the Midwest in uh, cornfields and alfalfa. These cornfields are ecological deserts. Two species of birds, um, insects that proliferate because they have pests, uh, they have toler- they've developed tolerance to a certain pesticides. I mean, I mean, it, this industrial uh, pesticide uh, agrochemical industry, and if you've been in any of the classes here in the last couple of days, th- these are talked about all the time. It's just the science is showing just devastation at every level of, of ecology and we need to be smart. The science shows us what we need to do and we just need to follow the science to borrow a term from Greta Thunberg. Well, because that's interesting because I think I heard that like the Midwest used to be the most fertile soil like on the face of the earth, right? And the soil organic matter was like 10% plus and now it's plummeted down below like 2%, right? Do you know what it is for Utah? I've heard that it used to be like 10% even here in Utah too, and now it's dropped. Do you know anything about that? Are you talking about 10% organic matter? Yeah, I in Utah I've talked to some people from the um, from the Extension Service and and read things. They say if your soil is three percent organic matter, two and a half to three percent, that's fertile soil. When I'm growing my stuff, especially my giant tomato project, I'm shooting for twenty percent, maybe twenty five percent. Take a lesson from the giant pumpkin growers. Now those are people that know what they're doing. Of course they do use chemicals, but they put gobs and gobs of organic matter and they feed those microorganisms. That's what pe- people don't realize how complex garden life is. Like if you just get like I know I finally got worms and I put them in my garden boxes because when you buy the bags of soil, they don't have life in them. There's nothing biologically alive in there. And I don't think people realize that's why they have to add the chemicals because they have to like synthetically put in the life, even though it won't really do what it's supposed to. But I think that's really interesting. I guess going back. So why do you think it's important for people to support local? then and support the local farmers well if you want to just look at the economics of it which is unfortunately all most people are concerned about it's the economy stupid as the politicians say um even from that perspective, the multiplier effect says that for every one dollar you spend locally, it's it's uh, multiplies by up to sevenfold because you're buying from your local farmer and then they buy your soap and then you buy somebody else's uh, shoes or or whatever. I mean, there's some things that need to be built in huge factories, such as tractors, and you could go on a long list. But there are so many things that can be produced and recirculated at the local level and if for no other reason you reduce the carbon footprint you're not driving around. I started this in 2011 primarily to do CSAs, you know the community supported agriculture shares where they get a box of wonderful fresh produce every year. My goal was to sell it to my neighbors so they could bring their wagon or wheelbarrow and never have to drive in their car. 
Well, unfortunately, I lived in a kind of poor area, and I only had one neighbor that could do that. I had people driving an hour away to get my stuff, and I'm like, that's not quite what I planned. That's still technically local. But, but the idea is be conscious. Wake up. Think about your decisions, your economic choices. With food, it's not like I was saying earlier about clothing and tires. You know, those might not be quite as critical. You're putting food in your body, and if it's got, if it's laced with chemicals, I mean, the, I, I just listened to the class where they said uh, a couple of generations ago, one in twenty people would get cancer in their lives. Today, it's one in three. Who doesn't know? I mean, in the last uh, four years, I've lost my father and my younger sister to cancer. And everybody knows somebody who's, who's got cancer or who's died from it. And, it, it's yeah, it's air pollution. Yeah, it's uh, um, water pollution and maybe some other things going on. But it's primarily the garbage that we're putting in our bodies. But for me, the biggest issue isn't even human health. The biggest issue is the future. We have a responsibility to future generations of humans and of plants and animals to not leave them a desert wasteland. Again, harking back to my training as an ecologist slash um, endangered species biologist, we have a, we call it a solemn or sacred moral responsibility to live sustainably on this planet. If you listen to Carl Sagan and others, this planet is so incredibly precious, so rare to have life. I mean, I've told a lot of people this. Go, you can go on YouTube and listen to his amazing speech, The Pale Blue Dot. How can you listen to that and not change this madness we have and still claim to be a thinking human being? No, we have a responsibility to sustain life on this planet. These dreams of terraforming Mars and stuff, okay, maybe we should do it, but that's not the solution. This planet is extremely rare, at least in our galaxy. I know we're familiar with another 4,000 planets and they have grand dreams, but why would we destroy this planet just to move on and destroy another? We know what we need to do to live sustainably with this planet now. What are your great-great-grandchildren going to think about you if they found out that you're... You know, driving a gas guzzler and eating... I mean, I could go on and on about all the sins. I commit some of them. Don't tell anybody. You know, we all have a little bit of hypocrisy in us. But, I mean, these are big ideas. But that's, that's why we should. It's because of our responsibility to the future of life on this planet. I mean... I, okay, I'm going to get personal. I shed tears when I heard that there's the last, you know, there's only one white rhino left on this planet, a male. That's the end of that species. Who did it? You know, people say it doesn't matter. Well, it does. They have a right to survive. That's just a big one. We're losing 
dozens of species of insects every day, most of them unknown to science. The, the barrier reefs, I mean, again, I'm trying to tie this into agriculture, but to me, this all ties in together of living responsibly on the land. You can have a backyard garden with incredible diversity, fruit trees, grapevines, um, berry, you know, shrubs, um, do some permaculture, manage your water, and you can invite all kinds of birds. I mean, I used to grow up, there were reptiles and amphibians. I used to chase them. I used to catch them. I made my own ponds. I just, I had nine aquariums and I dug dug these ponds and they hatch out, you know, the, the tadpoles and metamorph into these cool little creatures that eat. I mean, it's just so cool. And you can do that in your backyard. But I've approached people to grow in their backyards and no, I'd rather mow the grass. How boring. All the things you can do to green up the place and you invite birds. And when you invite birds, you might invite the occasional owl or hawk to kill those birds. Well, that's great. If you had predatory birds or other animals come to your property, man, you've done something right. Because it's a balance. I mean, every animal dies, you know, rather they die in a natural way than die from pesticide poisoning or even worse, not even having a habitat where they can live and reproduce. And that's the problem. Right. Well, that's what I think is interesting. People will think, yeah, what's the big deal about a white rhino? But I think what people don't realize is that all everything's connected. Everything's dependent on something. So that could have been a predator for something else. So we're throwing off the balance. When we take one species out, it completely knocks the balance off. And then everything kind of just goes downhill from there. That's why I like killing the birds and the bugs. I mean, it has like a downward spiral. You might just think you're killing a weed, but you have no idea what effect that's having on your local ecosystem would you agree with with that oh absolutely Uh, many predators are referred to as keystone species and that kind of refers if you think of an arch and the keystone is the one at the top of the arch you take that one out and the whole thing collapses there's study after study i mean it was a couple of years ago that i was in college but take an ecology class and you learn about the kayabat plateau for example and and uh, or places where um, they prohibit hunting and they've gotten rid of all the predators and the deer come in and wipe out the place. I don't have anything against deer, but there needs to be checks and balances. And if you look at the ecological services of wetlands, for example, and the amazing things we just listened to talk about, beavers and how they completely revitalize, restore, replenish, and beautify a place. They're killing trees. They cut down the trees and block it up. Well, then they build a a beaver pond that allows fish that may not be able... I mean, mean, and all the way up the the levels, you get the fish, you get the kingfishers that come in. Kingfishers are wonderful little birds. They go dive. I mean, it's so cool versus just this flat little, you know, trickle of water... cement bottom gutter or something. I mean, that's not interesting. Well, I I think I I listened to a podcast and they talked about beavers and they said that rivers are not supposed to be straight like they are now. They're not supposed to be neat and tidy and straight. Like, they would disperse fingers all throughout the forests and fields and that's all because of beavers. And the salmon were able to flow upstream and because the man-made dams, salmon can't do that, fish can't migrate. So it just, again, like a, a trickle effect. It affects the whole ecosystem 
everything gets thrown off balance when we wonder why stuff is suffering and things aren't growing as well. Yeah. And it's like we're a keystone species too. And I think people forget that. They don't think we can make an impact, either negative or positive. And I think it's the opposite. I think we have a very important role to play. Yeah, I don't want to come across as being anti-human because humans produce amazing music and art and and the love and happiness and joy that people can have and share. I mean, we're a sentient species and, you know, to me, the number one moral issue is reduced suffering. Yeah. You start with that, reduce suffering, and we're doing a better job of that. There's not as many starving children, for example, as there as there were 20 years ago even. Infant mortality is down and so on, but there's so much other suffering that's coming. It's always a balancing act, and, um, and I'm not into big government control of anything, but... But people need to make conscious decisions about what they're doing. And I think the, how we eat is a big part of that. Do we have a right to eat the, the very best and richest food just because we can? I mean, we haven't even talked about the oceans and the loss of, of uh, sharks, the top predators there, all the way the entire food chain around the ocean. Or I'm sure you've heard of the island of trash the size of Texas of plastic trash in the ocean and again I've worked with endangered species um, in the Gulf of Mexico and I've seen you know washed up pygmy sperm well that I helped to dissect and I've worked with sea turtles and and I've seen birds with fishing line and stuff all caught in them that I've helped to rescue and I mean people have done far more of that than I have but I've had enough exposure to know that that this is not the way things are supposed to work and I'm not saying we should go back and be cavemen although sometimes I think maybe that would be pretty cool Um, and hunter-gatherers cannot live at nearly the high density that modern industrial industrialized humans can but um, you know we can learn a lot from the hunter-gatherers they're not accumulating a bunch of stuff this acquisitiveness as it's known um, you see people, they, they just can't get enough stuff. They got to try every brand of shampoo, for example, or go to every restaurant. And I mean, I'm okay going to restaurants, but try to make it go to places where the chefs source their food locally. So again, you're um, supporting local agriculture. That's great if they're doing that. But if they're buying into this big multinational corporate farming of, of uh, I mean, really, American corporations are enslaving farmers around the world. That's a whole nother issue. I mean, the farmers are just about the poorest people in our country. Um, That's a very important profession, Um, maybe on par, maybe not with teachers who are also grossly underpaid, in my opinion, because they need to teach and train future generations. And, And yet people who are pushing keyboards, I'm not saying they're stupid or uneducated, but they're sitting behind a computer screen, um, you know, handling money with sticky fingers, if you know what I mean, and um, making things more efficient, that's fine, but do they deserve to make five times as much as the average farmer? Or don't get me started on CEOs. 
really don't. 420 times the average employee, oh, I wasn't going to do that. And um, there is an alternative. There's the term conscious capitalist. And in Utah, I think this has been a couple years, I think it was the number five or number six state in the United States that passed laws to allow for benefit limited liability corporations. And it really encourages local um, in in any kind of business, including agriculture. Um, It encourages giving back to the community where they have to have charity and, and service and giving back built into their into their bylaws or whatever you call it. And one of them that I liked, and I thought I was the first one with this idea, but no, I was thinking a 10 to 1. I'm going to tell you, as a, as a small business owner myself, the person who sacrificed for years and years and gave up so much and invested everything into a business and then the business finally starts to take off by golly they deserve to make more than everybody else in that business because they risked and sacrificed everything for it they should make probably a lot more so my view was 10 times as much wouldn't it be great if I could afford to pay my I'm sorry to use a cliche pay the janitor $100,000 a year and I made a million dollars a year I might even feel guilty at that level because some people are saying 5 to 1 I'd get a really good janitor at that rate I think Um, but the BLLC, the Benefit Limited Liability Corporations, their their ratio, one of their measures is 20 to 1. So, okay, 50,000 is not bad for, you know, but, but the, the guys aren't making a million. People aren't making $10 million a year. But the thing is... Then your business becomes a community where you're working together. I do like the model of employee-owned businesses because that kind of goes towards that. But they tend to still have CEOs that make insane, obscene, I should say, amounts of money. Who needs to make $50 million a year? You can't help but feel superior to other people. I'm not superior to you or anybody else. I don't care how much education you have or don't. I don't care what you look like or whatever. There's poor, uneducated people, again, a cliche, in countries in Africa. You know, some of the poorest countries, uh, Central Republic of Congo or whatever it's called. Sorry about my ignorance on the geography. But... um, those people have just as much potential as somebody else if they're given opportunities. I'm not an extreme liberal. Don't mix me up with the people who want absolute equal distribution of wealth. People who work hard and sacrifice for it. To me, money simply buys more choices, but you shouldn't lord it over people and try to control and um, dominate and in essence enslave them and a lot of corporations are doing that whether it's intentional or not that's the nature of big corporate America or in the world is enslaving people and I I like this smaller model where we work together shoulder to shoulder the idea of a community garden for example one of them I'll mention if you are not aware is Roots High School in West Valley City, Utah Um, they started in 2015 I believe and one of their requirements, I think they have like five or six acres of land wow. with grow beds. Yeah. And the students who are largely under underprivileged, you know, immigrant parents and things, yeah. 
they're expected to put in 10 hours a week into the garden and they sell the produce as CSAs to help support the school. The benefits to the kids are enormous. And these are the same benefits we all get from simple gardening. As they say, gardening is cheaper than therapy. Okay? Fresh air, sunshine, exercise, and hopefully you have people that you garden with, otherwise it gets real boring. Um, a fresh organic produce, the best you can eat. You're snacking all day on fabulous tasting stuff. Um, the, the benefits go on and on. Humans have been doing this since the dawn of agriculture, which was actually 13,000, the very beginnings, 13,500 or something. But 10,000 is roughly that. But humans have, have learned this all along. I mean, it's moderate exercise. It's healthy food, as long as you're not putting poisons on I mean, I want to encourage people to do that. Even if they can only grow 2% or 5% of their food, it's something and they still get the benefit from that. And the relaxation, let go of the of the madhouse, the madhouse pedal to the metal, got to earn, you know, I have to earn $165,000 next year. How did you get in that circumstance? Did you buy a house beyond your means? Did you charge credit cards to, to get this $70,000? car? Um, are you so wrapped up in status symbol that you feel like you have to keep up with the Joneses? To me, one of the biggest problems, again, this is getting off track a little bit. I do too much philosophizing, listen to too many debates and stuff. Uh, one of the fundamental issues is egotism. People believe that maybe it's a deep need that we have that we need to overcome through um, ethical training and education or something, but we have a need to feel superior to other people. My ideology is better than yours. I need to convert you to mine. Um, my house is better than yours. My children are better than yours. My diet is better than yours. My way of life is better than yours. And I prove that because I have more money and I consume more than you. Don't think like that anymore. Change your mind. We're humans. This is a precious life. Work with people. If you have more than others, invest in um, charities of your choice. Go out and help people. Volunteer with community organizations and gardens. Um, don't don't move from your five hundred thousand dollar home to a million dollar home. Why would you do that? You know, I, I, I I'm not a fan of big taxes. I am. I pat anybody on the back who's wealthy and gives a sizable percentage of it to charities, meaningful charities, and I'll leave it at that. I'll tell you, um, I garden pretty much by myself, and my mind races all the time, and I can't survive unless I have headphones on like you do and listen to courses like the great courses. I've listened to almost 200 of those, and I've listened to several thousand podcasts. I won't name them because that will that will label me as a certain type of person, but I'm, I'm willing to listen to a lot of them. I listen to debates and documentaries and, and so on. So I, I can listen to a course, an entire college course, in two or three days. I get a headache. And I'm not even going to try to pretend I remember it all. But 
it keeps me occupied and sometimes every occasionally I make a connection in my mind and and I spew it forth in an interview yeah well I know one thing I've I've done a lot of learning about regenerative agriculture lately and one thing I think is really interesting you know the talk about climate change is kind of front and center like what are we going to do about climate change and what I've been learning is that it's it's our agricultural methods from when we started like traditional agriculture with the tilling that that has been like one of the biggest contributors to the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere and because we continue to till and continue to use those industrial agriculture practices that we're just making matters worse now you can reverse it and pull all that CO2 back into the soil with like regenerative agriculture practices have you do you did you learn anything about that when you did your like education with ecology um, yeah, I did. Um, um, when I was working on my PhD, I took a class in pesticides in the environment, and that was very meaningful to me. And then some general ecology courses and things. A lot of what I've learned, I've learned since I um, kind of switched over to focus, focus more into agriculture. But there's just so... Um, you know, you mentioned the importance of regeneration. Carbon, se- carbon sequestration is a term that they use. And, um, you know, people don't know this, but lawns are one of the worst offenders for um, pesticide, herbicides and pesticide use. And um, there's many towns and cities across America who ha- that have ordinances against growing food in your front yard. How ridiculous is that? And they have these laws where your grass can only be so tall and things like that. Um, that, that that's insanity. It's about looking nice and keeping up property values. Blankety blank with property values. Let's have some more meaningful values. It's not just the economy, stupid. Thank you. I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. That You are obviously a wealth of information. But is there anything else that you would like to share? Um, thanks for having me and taking the time to talk with me. Mostly what I would share is be respectful of other people and the planet. Be conscious of your choices. Think about the future and go to your deathbed saying, I did all I could do. Have no regrets. Well, thank you. And if people are interested in like buying your seeds and getting in touch with you and learning from you, where can they find you? Um, I know the word delectation is not on every, the tip of everybody's tongue, but you can find either delectation of tomatoes or gianttomatoseeds.com points to the same place or if you find a rare tomato variety and you look it up and google it chances are it'll land on my website because i've got more than about 2,500 varieties of tomatoes available awesome well thank you again i really appreciate it thank you so much all right thanks if you enjoyed listening please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you found this podcast especially on itunes If you have a specific question that you would like to ask us or our farmers, makers, or educators, send us an email at podcast at mofacoutah.com and let us know. Another way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporting member starting at only $2 a month. 
We have different levels of membership that grant access to special members-only swag like shirts, hats, bags, magnets, and stickers that show your support for your local community. To learn more, please visit mofacoutah.com slash podcast slash support. Make sure you are following us on Facebook and Instagram at Mofaco Utah. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed in two weeks. But until then, we hope, hope to, to see you at the farmer's market. The music for this episode was created by Southern Utah local Jake Shepard. 